Hello and welcome to episode number 86 of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip back in time to bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago, exactly as it happened and exactly as it was reported by some of the greatest sports journalists of all time. In this episode, we are looking at the week of June 14th to 20th, 1971. The NBA playoffs are in full swing right now and the action increases from game to game. This is where the contenders are separated from the pretenders and to give you some skin in the game, DraftKings is offering free-to-play pools every day of the basketball playoffs, offering players a free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes. That's up to $10,000 in total prizes, up for grabs every single day, and the best part is it's free to play. DraftKings free-to-play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to the pools section, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games and track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team might score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code THP that's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network when you signed up to get your free shot at $10,000 in total prizes every day of the hockey and basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. And in addition to DraftKings, do not forget we are also sponsored by newspapers.com where we get much of our historical content and by the Breakwall Brewing Company of Port Coburn, Ontario, who are now have their patio open every day. And if you get a chance to get in the Niagara area, look me up and we'll meet at the Breakwall. If you like what we do here every day on Twitter and each week on this podcast, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free show, but we also have some really neat stuff and special content available only to our subscribers. Some of these features we delve deep into hockey issues of the day back 50 years ago and give you a lot of background and insight that hasn't really been published since that time. That's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe. With this week's uh, show, we're entering into what I've called the dead zone of hockey news that happens each year. It's the time between the uh, National Hockey League summer meetings and the openings of training camp the following September. Hockey news does come out from time to time during this period, and we'll report on that. 
But in our shows in the summer, we'll have more feature-type reporting. We'll have a little more time each week to uh, have a little more detail in what we're reporting. And where possible, we might even uh, reprise some of our favorite shows from the previous season this summer as well. There was a bit of news this week, and there will be some interesting news this summer. Uh, and you'll probably recognize it as we report on it. But let's get to the news of the week right now. Now, as we uh, know, last week was the NHL meetings, but there was still a bit of player movement taking uh, taking place in this week after the drafting and trading sessions. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers broke up a brother act and traded defenseman Larry Hillman to the Los Angeles Kings on the weekend in exchange for journeyman right winger Larry Mickey. Flyers general manager Keith Allen said we had an overabundance of NHL experienced defensemen and I just couldn't turn down the chance of acquiring a player like Mickey. Larry Hillman is now 34 and Mickey is 27. Larry's one of the most widely traveled players in the National Hockey League and he became expendable just during the last week's meetings when the Flyers drafted 24-year-old Larry Brown from the New York Ranger. Larry's 31-year-old brother Wayne, also a defenseman, he remains with the Flyers. Larry Mickey scored six goals, added 12 assists for 18 points in 65 games for the Kings last season. He's a 5'11", 180-pound native of Lacombe, Alberta. He has a good shot from the right-hand side. Two Ontario Hockey Association Junior A teams made news this week uh, with coaching news for both teams. Roger Bedard was hired for another season behind the bench of the Montreal Canadiens. That's four years in a row the Canadiens have announced that they've hired uh, Roger Bedard again. He's been a longtime junior coach, quite well respected in the junior ranks, but he's a little erratic and has had his share of controversy around his junior coaching career. The other coaching move came in London, where the Knights announced they had hired former NHL star and Port Colburn native Bronco Horvath to take over behind their bench. He spent last season in the Maritime Junior Leagues coaching Cape Breton. Another Junior A club, this time the Brandon Wheat Kings out west in Manitoba, announced that they have appointed former NHL coach and general manager Rudy Pillis as their executive general manager. Rudy, as you know, had been with the Denver Spurs of the Western Hockey League until this spring when the St. Louis Blues purchased the team. And the first thing they did was boot Rudy out of a job. But Rudy Pillis always lands on his feet. And once again, he has this time with the Brandon Jr. operation and he'll be running the whole show there. This next story I think a lot of you have been waiting for. I know I've been kind of looking at the news uh, all through this past season to see if we could see any rumblings about this. And there were a few, and we'll talk about that right now. What I'm talking about is kind of rumors of a new hockey league being established to challenge the sovereignty of the National Hockey League as hockey's one big major league. Now, we hadn't reported too much on this so far because it's all been in the rumor stages. Nothing from the mainstream media guys had really been put out in a 
incredible form, and so we really didn't have anything from which we could uh, give you a, a good report. Now, for years, there's been talk from the Western Hockey League that it wanted to attain major league status, and apparently the loop came very close to conducting player raids on NHL teams back in the early 60s, and in fact, at that time, Bobby Hull's name was mentioned as a prime target to be uh, signed by a team, probably the Los Angeles Blades, and he would be the first player robbed, you might say, from the National Hockey League, but nothing ever came of that, and the NHL's expansion in 1967 to the West Coast put the kibosh on the WHL's idea to become a major league, although right up until this point in time in 1971, they still harbored some secret desires to actually become a major league, but nobody in that league had the cash or the guts to really try and pull it off. Well, this week, for the very first time in the mainstream media, at least incredible journalistic sources, Word came out that a new endeavor being called the World Hockey Association uh, was being established and it was the brainchild of a couple of guys who brought you the American Basketball Association. Just what hockey needed right now, a league put together by a bunch of hockey ignorant yahoos to further delete the quality of play and raise player salaries, which you know is going to be passed on to the fans in the form of higher ticket prices. Here's the first story that we came across about this rival loop. Jerry Seltzer, the roller derby baron who made an unsuccessful attempt to purchase the Oakland Seals last year, said this week he's putting together a group to buy a Bay Area franchise in the newly proposed World Hockey Association. The National Hockey League awarded the financially barren seals to Charles O. Finley a year ago instead of the Seltzer Combine, which included several National Football League owners. Later, the NHL asked Seltzer to bail out the ailing Pittsburgh Penguins, but the man who built roller skating into a multi-million concern said no to that proposition. Now, Seltzer is aiming to join the World Hockey Association, which right now is operating out of Miami and plans a 14-team professional league to begin play in 1972-73. They're going to get this thing up and running pretty darn quick by the sounds of it. The WHA is a brainchild of Gary Davidson, the first president of the American Basketball Association and former Oakland Oaks executive Dennis Murphy. And they say it already has five franchise commitments in cities such as Los Angeles, New York, Miami, Honolulu, and Milwaukee, which has been considered a prime expansion site for the NHL. This infant organization is also dickering with Baltimore, Boston, Louisville, Greensboro, North Carolina, Columbus, Ohio, Hartford, Connecticut, Atlanta, Winnipeg, Ottawa, Quebec City, and cities in Indiana and New Jersey. The SEALs, besides operating in Oakland, have minor league team agreements in Baltimore and Columbus, so we can see a conflict there already. This, by the way, is from the Oakland Tribune. 
The Tribune contacted Jerry Seltzer, and he had this to say. If I can promote a July 4th roller derby attraction that draws 30,000 spectators two years in a row, I can make big league hockey succeed under local ownership in the Bay Area, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Well, if this thing ever does get off the ground, we'll of course report on everything we can find on it, about the only good I could see out of this league, as it could raise the salaries of the players, and that's never a bad thing. But that's if the player rating does take place. The problem, as always, is that the NHL owners won't absorb any of the costs to keep the players, so that'll be passed on to the fans, of course. That is if the NHL owners treat this thing as something serious. NHL owners have known to be very short-sighted, and if these guys do have some good financial backing, they could pose quite a problem for the NHL guys. Here's a story that has resurfaced this week, and if it's true, you gotta wonder if Gordy Howe will even want to be a member of the Detroit Red Wings as the way they're being run by Ned Harkness. Ted Blackman of the Montreal Gazette had the details this week. Ted wrote, Willie Mays at 40 continues to contribute to San Francisco because he paces himself, never playing on the night before a day game. Jean Beliveau at 39 never played as many games as last season, but by economizing on a power play time, he conserved enough energy to lead Canadians to a most unexpected Stanley Cup. And now, at age 43, Gordie Howe, at last, will begin to pace himself. He's going back on defense, says Detroit coach Doug Barkley while in Montreal the other day. Barkley says, no, I haven't discussed it with him as yet, but the big guy does what is best for the team, and he played back there at the start of last season. Barkley then corrected himself and said, well, that is, he played there until our scoring went so bad we had to make a move and get him back up front. Barkley says that this season the Red Wings will be better off up front and Gordy and Alex Del Vecchio will have a little less ice time and Barkley says we'll use them in the right spots. Now Blackman writes that Barkley who took over last midseason from a floundering Ned Harkness apparently has decided that as long as it is his job on the line he might as well win or lose it himself by calling his own shots but this in no way means that Howe has or would balk at coaching orders. I personally never believed that this was Doug Doug Barkley's idea, but rather that the boss, Ned Harkness, tells Doug, you better do this my way. And Ned Harkness wants things done his way in Detroit. Well, in the Detroit Free Press, the main paper in uh, Motown these days, and uh, has excellent coverage of the Red Wings. Their sports editor is Joe Falls, more of a baseball guy, but Joe as an American did pride himself on the knowledge he had of hockey. And uh, he expressed his opinion on what this was obviously a plan of design of Ned Harkness. Joe writes, why doesn't Ned Harkness get off this kick of trying to make Gordie Howe a defenseman? I thought he learned his lesson last season. Falls writes, obviously I'm very prejudiced on this matter, but I can't see why Harkness doesn't let our man go out as gracefully as possible. How certainly deserves that much after all 
he has given to the Red Wings. It'd be one thing if the Wings were a championship contender and by switching how to defense, it might put them into the top position. But they're so sad that it's not going to make any difference where Gordy Howe plays. So I take the chance of embarrassing him in his final season. Anyway, writes Joe Falls, I thought it was Doug Barkley who was coaching this team. You will remember a few weeks ago when we reported on that crazy uh, Eastern Canada Junior A final between the St. Catharines Blackhawks and Quebec City and all the news it made with the shenanigans going on, uh, rough play on the ice, crazy fans in Quebec, and an eventual forfeit by the Blackhawks. Well, the Canadian press had this story this week of the aftermath of what happened because of that forfeit. Fred Muller owner and general manager of the St. Catharines Blackhawks of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, was suspended for one year by the executive of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. The suspension of Muller for the 1971-72 season means he will have to arrange for a general manager Forest Hockey Club. Joe Kriska, the new Canadian Amateur Hockey Association president, said Muller cannot act in any capacity with the club during his suspension. The ban on Muller followed the indefinite suspension by the CAHA because of the failure of the St. Catharines team to complete a semi-final Eastern Junior Series against Quebec Remparts of the Quebec Junior A Hockey League. However, there is a delicate and difficult area in which the CAHA does not wish to intrude. That area involves Muller as owner and only shareholder of a corporation. Muller bought out his former partner, Ken Campbell, about a week ago to become sole owner of the St. Catharines Blackhawks. The CAHA is not likely to object to Muller sitting in, as usual, at Junior A owners meetings, which are held regularly throughout the season. As spokesman for St. Catharines, his absence could be interpreted as a penalty to the other teams involved in business sessions. He apologized to our meeting, reported Gordon Jooks, executive manager of the CAHA, and, Juke says, he accepted the full responsibility for what happened. It was the first time that any of our clubs had ever done this, that's defaulted in a series, and there was no way that we could overlook it. Now, during this suspension, Muller will not be able to negotiate with players or assign contracts, but as an owner, of course, he can hire a manager and give the orders. He will likely not be prohibited from running the club's financial affairs from his little office in the St. Catharines Garden City Arena. In short, Muller has been suspended as a general manager, but not as an owner. Kriska told reporters, actually the Canadian press, that uh, Muller made his appeal at the indefinite suspension to the executive of the CAHA and he showed no animosity toward Quebec or Ontario. He accepted the decision and that's all I'm going to say about it. Muller also was reticent to uh, discuss the suspension at all and his only statement said, I've been suspended for one year. There's nothing I can say 
or do about it. And more of the off-ice news that tends to make the headlines during this off-season. In case you had forgotten, there is a certain Canadian team's top executives still dealing with legal issues. And we're talking about, of course, the Toronto Maple Leafs and their head honchos, C. Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard, both facing income tax evasion charges from the Canadian government. There are a couple of stories that came out early this week that shed a little more light on the case, particularly of Smythe. Uh, Smythe's case is the one that they're talking about here, but Harold Ballard, almost identical charges. This will affect his too. Whatever happens with Smythe will spill over into Ballard's case as well. Well, on Monday, J.J. Robinette, who is the uh, lawyer appearing for Stafford Smythe before the Supreme Court of Canada, he said that powers given to the Minister of Justice under the Income Tax Act undermined the right of equality before the law guaranteed to all Canadians under the Bill of Rights, the Supreme Court of Canada was told. Appearing for Smythe, Robinette said that the Income Tax Act allows a justice minister to decide whether some persons can be liable to heavier penalties than others. The seven justices hearing the appeal reserved their decision. Now, what he meant by this, uh, the Income Tax Act, Uh, offenses are what they call dual procedure offenses. In Canada, that means they can proceed by way of indictment or by way of summary conviction. And that decision is always made by the Crown, never by the accused. And so the Crown has the option, or in this case, the finance minister has the option, because he's acting for the Crown, to proceed by one of two ways, proceeding by indictment gives the accused a much more severe penalty than proceeding by summary conviction. Robinette's point is allowing the government this choice would not would allow some the government to uh, treat some people more harshly than others and that he says is against the Bill of Rights. Now I know a little bit about this because I used to teach the uh, Canadian judicial system to the students at the Ontario Police College and I tried to do it in a way that would make them understand just how this uh, it sounds very uh, confusing and complicated but it's really not. This would in effect shake the entire judicial system and criminal justice system in Canada if they found that this was in fact a uh, contravention of the Bill of Rights. Very, very, uh, it's a long shot by Smice lawyers and we would shortly find out just how much of a long shot this would be. Well, as we mentioned, the seven justices made no decision this week on this case, but rather said they were reserving their decision for later in the year. And it was expected that a a decision would be rendered sometime uh, before the fall or at least before the end of the year, probably in October. Now, this decision by the Supreme Court had us all kind of wondering what the heck was going on. Why would they defer something like this, especially that long down the road? Well, we got our answer later in the week. Uh, Maybe the court had a bit of a heads up uh, from what was uh, going on, that maybe something big was in the offing and something big definitely 
was percolating in the background and by the end of the week we found out what that something big was. On Friday, C. Stafford Smythe, 51-year-old president of Maple Leaf Gardens Limited, was arrested on theft and fraud charges involving $395,000 in cash and securities. And theft and fraud charges also were laid against Harold Ballard, the garden's executive vice president. Fraud squad detectives, that's Toronto Police fraud squad detectives, were seeking a Ballard this morning to exercise a warrant for his arrest, an arrest warrant for Harold Ballard. And there had been an arrest warrant for, for Smythe as well. They didn't arrest him just on reasonable and probable grounds. They produced an arrest warrant and took him into custody. Smythe was arrested about 11 a.m. by three detectives in his office at Maple Leaf Gardens, and he was taken immediately to police headquarters on Jarvis Street, where he was photographed and fingerprinted like all common criminals. He was then escorted to a city hall courtroom where it was expected he would be remanded uh, to a, a later date for uh, court and it would be a first appearance where he would be officially arraigned and a plea would be entered. As he walked from the gardens to a police cruiser, Smythe kept his face averted from a press camera. When a reporter asked if he had any comment, Smythe said, yeah, I got lots of comment, but he wouldn't say anything more at that particular point in time. Smythe and Ballard are jointly charged with stealing money and other securities to a value of $146,000 that are the property of Maple Leaf Gardens. This took place between 1964 and 1969, right around the time the income tax evasion charges took place as well. Smythe faces an additional charge of defrauding the gardens of $249,000 during that same time period. A second charge against Harold Ballard alleges that between 1965 and 1969, he defrauded Maple Leaf Gardens of $83,000. Warrants for both arrests were sworn out by Detective Sergeant Charles Angus of the Toronto Police Fraud Squad. Metro Police detached three detectives from their normal fraud squad duties to devote full time to the investigation. Angus and Detectives Lloyd Creighton and David Simser set up a special office on University Avenue and they are working with lawyer Clayton Powell who has been appointed a special prosecutor in this case. They do not want to muck this up at all. They really want to get these guys. This is a procedure that is reserved for very high profile cases in which they know no mistakes can be made because they also know that Ballard and Smythe are going to have the best lawyers they can find as well. Now, this is just how much investigation has gone into this case already. The police said that lawyer Powell and the three detectives have interviewed for this case more than 180 potential witnesses. Both Smythe and Ballard have been associated with hockey in the gardens for most of their lives, as you know. Smythe was a stick boy for the May police in the years immediately following construction of the gardens in 1931, 
by his father, Con Smythe. At 11, he was a coach and manager of minor league teams, and he continued these duties with the University of Toronto team while he was studying for his engineering degree. Following World War II service with the Royal Canadian Navy, staff was named manager of the Marlboros, which of course was the Leafs Junior A farm team in the 1940s. In 1957, Conn Smythe named staff chairman of the Leaf Hockey Committee. Stafford then replaced general manager Howie Meeker and coach Billy Ray with George Punchimlack, and of course that led to four Stanley Cups. Two years ago, he fired Imlack after the Boston Bruins bumped the Leafs out of the Stanley Cup playoffs in four straight games. Stay tuned. There's going to be a lot to go with this story as well, and we'll have it as it surfaces over the coming weeks. Another big story with another Canadian team this week came came out of Vancouver where the ownership of the Canucks hockey franchise suddenly and very unexpectedly was on very shaky ground. Unless you're steeped in banking and financial experience, this whole stinking mess was a tad difficult to follow. Word had come out at the end of uh, the NHL meetings last week that Metacor, the United States-based majority owners of the Canucks, had defaulted on payment of a loan that was due to the tune of $3.4 million U.S. and trading of the Metacore stock on the American Stock Exchange was halted. Montreal Trust had been appointed to administer the finances of the Canucks and it was learned that the four Canadian directors of the club had resigned and things just became more murky as the week unfolded. Hal Sergudson of the uh, Vancouver Sun had most of the reporting that we used this week, but there was so much in so many different uh, publications. Uh, We tried to collate all of it as best we could. Uh, On Monday, Sigerson reported that Medicorp President Tom Scallon had secured financing to enable the Minneapolis-based company Medicorp to regain majority interest in Northwest Sports Enterprises Limited, which is the parent company of the NHL Vancouver Canucks. The Vancouver Sun learned during the the weekend that a New York bank had agreed to lend Metacore the money it needs to match bids on its Northwest Sports stock, which is currently being held in escrow by the Montreal Trust Company on instructions from the British Columbia Securities Commission. That's pretty heavy stuff. A bank shareholder said the loan would be made to Metacor on a short-term, high-interest basis. That sounds to me like what loan sharks do a lot of the time. Now, Metacor was obliged to place its 60.1% interest in Northwest Sports in escrow after the commission learned that a total of $3,505,000 had been transferred to the United States from Northwest Sports Canadian bank accounts. Scallon termed the transfers alone. Well, the Securities Commission then ruled that the loan had to be repaid by midnight last Wednesday to the hockey team. When it was not, the superintendent of brokers, W.S. Irwin, said the stock could be released to be sold and that would put Northwest Sports and Enterprises 
up for grabs to the highest bidder, and Montreal Trust was appointed to administer this so-called auction. On Tuesday, the Sun reported that there would be at least two, and perhaps as many as five bidders, for Metacor's controlling interest in the Canucks. The opinion was offered by club director Coley Hall, who's been uh, trying to get NHL hockey in Vancouver since the early 60s, and he's been around since the beginning of the Canucks. Now, Hall, in concert with three other Canadian directors of the team, has announced that he will resign his directorate at the next annual meeting of Northwest Sports Enterprises Limited, present company of the Canucks. Hall says, I have certain knowledge that there will be at least two bidders for the team, and I think they'll probably four or five. Wow. Now, Hall, of course, is a very big proponent of having a Canadian ownership for the Canucks, and he doesn't sound too uh, optimistic about uh, Canadians taking over the Canucks. He said, the money to make the deal is here in British Columbia. The bids will be there, but the question is whether they will be just an exercise in futility. Now, the reason Hall says this is because local bidders, or in fact any others uh, who would want to bid on the, the stock, could be going through no more than an academic exercise because Metacore, uh, as we mentioned, based in the United States, has the right to match any bids for its own stock. So what they could do is pull off some kind of a financial deal where no matter what the other bid is, they simply match it by getting a loan for exactly that amount. And this is what everybody thinks is probably going to happen unless the provincial government were to step in. On Wednesday, the Sun reported that Medicor had the cash to recover its shares. They said Medicor's chances of regaining control of the Canucks National Hockey League franchise improved, but the eventual outcome was still in doubt. The Minneapolis-based company, through a letter from its local solicitor, Alan McEachern, local meaning in Vancouver, had indicated to Montreal Trust that some $3.5 million transferred from the Canadian bank accounts of Northwest Sports Enterprises uh, will be returned this Thursday. The Sun learned that Metacorp President Thomas K. Scallon had arranged a loan, just like we mentioned a few minutes ago, of up to $5 million from the Chemical Bank and Trust Company of New York City. A bank shareholder said that Metacor will use its holdings in the Ice Follies and its shares in Northwest as collateral for this loan. Well, quite a scene unfolded on Thursday when it was reported by The Sun that Kapazi Enterprises Limited emerged with the interim control of the Vancouver Canucks. Lawyer Alan McEachern, whom we just uh, mentioned, he was acting for Metacor, uh, he said that the uh, parent company of Canucks, Northwest Sports Entertainment, uh, he said that Kapazi Enterprises had redeemed Metacor's escrow shares by turning over $3.65 million to Montreal Trust. Metacor's shares with the uh, place in escrow when it was revealed $3.5 million had been transferred from the Northwest uh, 
Northwest Canadian Bank accounts. Montreal Trust released the shares from escrow and they now will be held in trust by Canada Trust on behalf of Capazzi Enterprises. Now, the Capazzi company sounds familiar. It's because Herb Capazzi, who's vice president of the firm, is a former social credit member of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia, and he is also the former general manager of the BC Lions of the Canadian Football League, and he says that Metacor would make monthly interest payments and they have 12 months to repay the principal and upon repayment of the principal, Metacor would then get its control of its stock back and control of the Canucks back. Well, stripping away all of the legalese as best he could, Jim Kearney, the fine columnist of the uh, Vancouver Sun, provided us with an explanation on the state of the Canucks ownership at the week's end after the maneuvering by Capazzi, Herb Capazzi. Now, Capazzi said he just wanted to be president of the team. He did not want to be general manager. There were a lot of stories being written that Capazzi wanted to take over and run the day-to-day operations of the Vancouver Canucks. He said that's not true. He's a football guy. He's not a hockey guy. He's a hockey fan, and he wants hockey to succeed in Vancouver and that's why he got involved but Jim Kearney wrote this when the smoke of the battle finally clears you may properly assume that Herb Capazzi will be back in the sporting world with an NHL franchise tucked into his inside pocket of his mod cream colored double knit suit stripped of all legal baffle gab the Vancouver Canucks ownership deal announced Thursday essentially is this. Metacore is betting that it can pay back within a 14-month time limit the $3.6 million it borrowed from Capasi Enterprises to repay the money it owes Northwest Sports Incorporated, the Canucks parent company. Capasi Enterprises captained this venture by the well-known retired football tackle and general manager, and they're betting that Metacore can't do what we just described it must, and thus they will be able to exercise their option to purchase Metacore's 60.1% interest in Vancouver's NHL team. Now, from all available evidence, Kearney says there is only one horse on which to place your bets and it's not Metacore. Kearney writes that Herbie Capazzi didn't move fast enough on the field to become one of the greats of the Canadian Football League. But off the field, his speed and timing have been something else. He has at least a two-goal lead in this particular corporate contest because Metacore president Tom Scallon has to find $3.6 million plus interest of thirty grand a month without being able to touch the treasury of his biggest single cash flow source, the Canucks Hockey Club. The return of the money to Northwest Sports Treasury doesn't call off the British Columbia Securities Commission investigation into the club's affairs. If the commission comes up with something less than a clean bill of health, which is entirely possible in this affair, Metacore's position here will be untenable and will come to an end. Now, this story was, of course, a long way from being resolved, and it would continue to dominate the sports pages, at least in Vancouver, for a while yet, and we'll give you the developments as they came out.
So that is this week's show, everyone, the first of the summer dead zone. And actually, there was quite a bit going on uh, that we had a little fun with, I think, reporting these. And what did we learn from this week? Well, we learned the Red Wings still won't let the goofy idea of having Gordie Howe play defense go. They're still going to make him do that this fall. And they've said it to the newspapers, and they haven't even talked to Gordie yet. How stupid could that be? We also learned of the arrests of Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard. Uh, would this result in their removal from Maple Leaf Gardens executive and save the franchise from decades of hardship? We didn't know what would happen in 1971. We sure know now, though, don't we? And we also learned more details on the financial mess that's besetting the Vancouver Canucks, and it was a long way from being resolved. We'll be back next week with another episode of... Uh, news from the summer dead zone and here's some of the stories that we're following right now the american hockey league will uh, formally admit a new sabers farm team resurrecting the old buffalo bisons franchise in a brand new city and it's not danny of florida there was word that the boston bruins might be changing their style in the coming seasons and that uh, Phil Esposito had some thoughts on the changing the style, but Phil might not be with the Bruins because there was a lot of talk around the NHL that the Bruins cannot afford to keep both Bobby Orr and Esposito. They're both getting big contracts this summer. And uh, some stories, more stories sur surfaced on the formation of the rival major hockey league. And we'll talk a bit about that as well. The World Hockey Association was about to get started. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. He continues to put out great content, a great product for us every single week and he produces podcasts of his own and for others and if you're interested in putting something together get a hold of me i'll put you in contact with andy and maybe you can work something out the very popular juno nominated toronto indie rock group the rural alberta advantage provides our introduction music and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great high-energy live show. They are going to be uh, appearing in Edmonton during the first week of August, we understand, as the world starts to get back to something resembling normal. Other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers. Dot com. During the hockey season, you can find us every day at, at Hockey50Years on Twitter. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. And our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com where we have news on the podcast and other uh, information on our accounts as well. Of course, your favorite podcast uh, sites also has this podcast. And the Hockey Podcast Network is our home every single week. We thank everyone who turns into the show. We hope you'll stick with us through the summer. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice